On this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show, I'll be doing a solo podcast on the Christian nationalism of the Confederate South. There is a fascinating book by David Carlson on the proceedings of the Confederate Congress in 1861. And one of the things that is so fascinating about these proceedings are the prayers that open the sessions. And one of the things that you learn in reading this book is one not only did the Confederate South see itself as a brand new nation, but it also saw itself as a distinctly Christian nation. At least that's what we see in the prayers, and we'll talk about this and more on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. Hello there. I have been really fascinated by the history of the Confederacy, and particularly I've been fascinated by the connection between the history of the Confederacy and Christian nationalism today. One of the things that I have discovered in a lot of recent reading is that the Christian involvement in the Confederacy, the formation of the Southern Confederacy in 1861, was in fact an attempt at Christian nationalism. So much of the Christian nationalism today has really surprised me, and I've always just been really curious, like, where did it come from? What What is it about this impulse to sort of see this wedding between Christianity and a sense of, of nation? The nationalism part is really more the more troubling part, not, not the Christian part. And I was on the University of Alabama's website just kind of randomly and ran across uh, this book by David Carlson. I'll link it here below the Congress of States, the proceedings of the Provisional Congress of the Confederate States of America in 1861. This is absolutely fascinating. The way in which this book is put together is that you get the proceedings. And what David Carlson does, he's a professor at Troy University, is he takes all the minutes, the notes, and, and the prayers, and he puts those things together. And when you read the book, it feels like you're there. It feels like you're sitting in the audience as they were forming the Confederacy. A couple of things really stand out. One I'll drop here and we'll address at a later date. First is that the Confederacy was really an American experiment in socialism. I think I was really shocked to find that. This book by David Williams and Teresa Williams and David Carlson, also the author of this book. Uh, this book really, really surprised me here. This book is titled A Plain Folk and a Rich Man's War, Class and Descent in Confederate Georgia. And that's where I began to really see the data. And again, I'll do a separate discussion of this, that, that, that the Confederacy was actually communism. It was, it was socialism. Uh, it wasn't free market. It was not limited government. The, the Confederate government was actually much more like the Soviet Union than it was uh, America. What strikes me today, though, about this book by David Carlson on the formation of the Confederacy is, in fact, the ways in which the Confederacy was set up to be a Christian nation. And what I was particularly struck by in the context of this book were the prayers, the prayers that they opened the proceedings of the Confederate States during these professional congress, the prayers that open up those meetings tell the story. These were primarily Baptist and Presbyterian, some Protestant Episcopal ministers, which would later become United Methodists, but it's mostly Protestant. There were, by the way, there were some Catholic priests as well who would open in prayers. It It was somewhat ecumenical, but at the end of the day, this was more of a Baptist Southern Baptist and Southern Presbyterian project. And I was really struck particularly by a number of prayers that really sort of speaks to the fact that that during the, the formation of the Confederacy, that many members of the Congress really believed that this was sort of divine providence, that God had had was instituting the Confederacy as a nation to advance the kingdom, the kingdom of God here here on earth. And I'm not exaggerating because you see it particularly in, 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 their, in their prayers. What's really fascinating also about the prayers is because they were primarily Presbyterian and Baptist leaders, leaders they, were, they were prayers that represented the master class, the elites. These weren't prayers 
that represented the quote unquote plain folk, the regular people, because the regular people, as I'll talk about in another podcast, were against the war. Your average working class, kind of poor white Southerner was against the Confederacy. They were not pro the Confederacy. They were also against the Civil War in general. The Civil War and the theological interpretation of God's providence in the context of the cause of the South was primarily driven by class. It wasn't driven by theology. It wasn't driven by the Bible. This was an appropriation by a particular class of people of their faith in a way that advanced the cause, the political and, and economic causes of their of their social class, uh, which is really, really fascinating to me. Somewhat, somewhat depressing, you you might say, but to me, it really does. It really does make a lot of sense in terms of explaining some of the Christian nationalism that we see that we see today. Listen to this prayer. This is from the Reverend Manley of some First Baptist Church in the state of South Carolina. Not exactly sure which one, but he was clearly Baptist. These are some of the things that he said in the very opening session in Montgomery, Alabama, February 4th, 1861. That session was from February 4th, 1861 to March 16th, 18. 61. On Monday, February 4th, 1861, Reverend Manley, this Baptist guy from South Carolina, opens with this prayer. O thou great spirit of the universe, thou madest all things, thou madest upon the universe. Thou hast endowed us with reason and the capacity of government. We thank thee that thou hast here established a free government and a pure form of religion. We thank thee for all of the holy memories connected to our father's history. Thou wert the God of our fathers. O, oh, be thou our God. Let it please thee to vouchsafe thy secret presence in this assembly. O oh, Father, we trust that we can appeal to the heart searching God for the purity and sincerity of our motives. If it were in rebellion against thee, if it were in violation of any compact still obligatory upon us, that these southern portions of this great country are now withdrawing from the government of our fathers instituted and proposing to set up a new one. If it were in rebellion against God and in profanation of any principle of piety or duty, we could hope for thy presence and thy blessing. Now, what's so fascinating to me is that th this prayer is for the support of men and women who were enslaving people. The prayer is that they would be in line, right, with God's providence, that, that their motives would be sincere while they were enslaving people, and that God would honor their promotion and defense of slavery against those who are invading them, and that God would honor them and advance their cause, recognizing and being honest about the fact that they're not rebelling against God. This is what's so interesting to me, is this line about, if it were in rebellion against God and slave-owning in the South was directly rebelling against God. Yet the prayer is offered as if it's a given that it's not at the and, and that they are just in their in their cause. And then at the end of this prayer, Reverend Manley the Baptist says, And now will God preside over this body in its organization, in the distribution of his duties, in its various labors, let this momentous era, this stirring occasion, be so regarded by the Father of mercies, the God of the universe, that it may be the commencement of a glorious reign of truth, of duty, of equal rights, and of a just apportionment of all the principles and benefits pertaining to government. 
And now, Father in heaven, we acknowledge thee as our God. Oh, do thou rule in us. Thou sway us. Do thou control this body and all the people they represent. And let the blessing of thy Son and Holy Spirit rest upon them now and forevermore. Amen. To me, this is absolute insanity that in this prayer about the commencement of glorious of the glorious reign of truth and of duty and of equal rights, they're asking God to bless them in the support of slavery. I guess in their mind, slavery is not against truth. Slavery, slavery is not in direct contradiction to having equal rights. And apparently it is, it is somehow in line with the very principles of God. So you begin to see in some of these early prayers, this, this is how the convention opened, right? That they were believing that this was a part of God's plan and God's providence, particularly for the South. Another prayer on Tuesday, February 5th, 1861, by the Reverend Mr. Mitchell of the St. John's Church, which I believe is an Episcopal church. On Tuesday, February 5th, 1861, the Reverend Mr. Mitchell of the St. John's Church, this is an Episcopal church in Montgomery, Alabama, opens the session with this prayer. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, thy high and mighty ruler of the universe, who from thy throne behold all the dwellers upon the earth, most heartily do we beseech thee to look with favor upon these representatives of sovereign independent states in thy presence assembled. Save them from all error, ignorance, and pride. Endow with them wisdom, moderation, and justice. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but may all things be done in thy fear with the view of thy glory. And do thou be pleased so to order all of the deliberations of this body, that they may conduce to the safety, honor, and welfare of the people. And all of the principles of government that may adopt shall be settled upon the best and surest foundations of justice and right and that they may advance the peace and happiness the prosperity and security and the piety and the religion of the whole people so that god in all things may be honored and glorified the supplications we present not not in our name or for our righteousness but in the name for the sake of christ our lord amen so in this prayer, he is asking that the February 8th, 1861 proceedings of the Congressional Congress for the slaveholding states, that they would be saved from error and ignorance and pride. Fantastic. That's a great, great prayer. That they wouldn't be pursuing vainglory. Amen to that. But then it goes on to say, that that which they are attempting to do is for the safety and honor and welfare of all the people. Well, this includes, of course, the master class, but it, it categorically excludes three groups of people. One, Native Americans. Two, enslaved and freed African Americans. And three, lower class whites. They were called back then rednecks or crackers or lubbers. In Georgia, they were called dirt eaters, for example. The cause of the South wasn't for them. The cause of the South was not for, for Native Americans, slaving and free blacks, or poor whites. That was not the cause of the South. But this prayer is offering it up as, as if it's the truth. That the South would do something like advance, listen, advance the peace, the peace and happiness, the prosperity and security and the piety and religion of the whole people. Now, how can you both defend slavery, the subjugation of Native Americans, the economic marginalization and oppression by the Confederate government of the lower class and white classes, and then pray for the piety and the religion of the whole people? 
Well, you can if it's some sort of, I guess, bizarre form of Christian nationalism there in Montgomery, uh, which is what this actually is. Wednesday, February 6, 1861, the Reverend Mr. Titchener of the Baptist Church offers this prayer. And at this point, I actually wrote, wait, what? In the, in the margins. He begins by, by praying, O Father who art in heaven, we rejoice with all thy mercies toward us. We bless thee that in our privilege, guilty though we are, to come to thy throne of grace and ask forgiveness of our transgressions. And for all that grace and strength needful for us in the discharge of the duties thou hast evolved us. And then the prayer, the prayer continues with this. We thank thee for thy measure of peace, prosperity, and security, which they have enjoyed in days past. And this is sort of the, the sovereign states of the South. Then it continues. We pray that thee continue unto them, that the sovereign states of the South it is, Thy blessings, spread the shield of thy protection over them, guard them by thine own right hand, and enable them to do those things which are pleasing in thy sight. And, O, we beseech thee, our Heavenly Father, if consistent with thy will, let peace be within our borders. But if thou hast in thy providence determined otherwise, if it be needful that we should lay the foundation of this new confederacy in tears, and cement it with blood. O oh, our God, we beseech thee that thou wouldest stand by thy servants and thou wouldst give us success to our armies in the day of battle. And the conflict, if it must come, may be short and effectual for the preservation of the rights of this people. And now we look to thee, O Heavenly Father, and again beseech thy blessing during the hours of this day. Hear us in our petitions and forgive us our sins and save us through our Redeemer. Amen. Think about what you just heard. Here is this Baptist pastor praying in support of slaveholding states and slaveholding culture and racism, and subjugation of Native Americans, freed blacks, enslaved blacks, the subjugation and marginalization of poor whites. This is the context of, of the South. That God would defend, the, would defend the Confederacy against the Confederacy's enemies. And that they would be successful as if, as if, they know their cause is so potentially right that God would give them success over the North who are potentially against freedom and liberty and justice. And that God would give them success in the battle and praying, thankfully, I like this part of the prayer, that it would not come to our conflict. Absolutely love this part of the prayer. It's so interesting in this particular prayer that this, this call to the possible need to cement the foundation of the Confederacy in blood, in blood and tears, hopefully hoping that would not come. But if it need be, it, it would happen. And here's why. For the preservation of the rights of this people. For the preservation of the rights of the Confederate states to enslave African Americans to create a context of racial subjugation for freed blacks and Native Americans and also use their rights to, in a very sense, related to the practice of communism, oppress and marginalize poor white people. This is the prayer of the Confederacy. And that somehow this is part of, at least in the prayers, right, part of God's providence and plan and victorious orientation toward those institutions and the formation of the Confederate South. Let's get some Presbyterians in here on Thursday, February 7th, 1861. The Reverend G.W.H. 
Petrie of the Presbyterian Church offers this prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, with profound reverence do we bow before thy divine majesty, acknowledging thy claims upon our worship and beseeching thee to receive our supplications through the grace that is given us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he continues with respect to the representatives of the sovereign states. Bless them this day in their deliberations and be pleased to grant that they may adopt these measures which may be promotive for the safety, honor, and welfare of the people and which may conduce to the honor and glory of God. Avert from us all impending evils and overrule all things that our people may realize their highest hopes and have their most ardent duties fulfilled. Continues and says amen. So, again, praying that God would grant the South, particularly the master class and those who are advancing the cause of the South, would indeed grant them safety and honor and welfare, the welfare of the people. What people? The welfare of the people isn't all the people. It's just some of the people. It's just the people in the master class, the people who are instituting this war in the first place. Again, the war wasn't plain folk. We'll talk about that next time. The war wasn't plain folk. The war was the master class. It was slave owners. It was landholders. This is what the war was about. And that this was somehow syncretistically wedded with the providence of God. That the safety and welfare and honor of the people is what this war is about. Unfortunately, the definition of the people is related to one social and economic class. We've had a Baptist. We've had a Presbyterian. Why don't have some Catholics in here as well? The Reverend A.D. Pellisher of the St. Peter's Catholic Church on February 8, 1861 in Montgomery, Alabama, says this prayer in the opening of the proceedings. O eternal God, most holy, adorable Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in whom we live and move and have our being, by whom we were created, redeemed, and sanctified, we firmly believe that thou art present in this assembly, and we therefore adore, praise, and glorify thee. Then it continues, under the firmest convention of our cause, and firmly relying on thy divine protection, we humbly call on thee, most merciful Father, to direct the deliberations of the members of this Congress by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that the great and glorious word for which they have assembled in thy name and for the independence, peace, and happiness of thy children may always be again from thee and by thee be happily ended through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So think about this. What could possibly bring a Baptist and a Catholic and a Presbyterian together in the South? The South. The cause of the South. The idol of the South. That's what brings them all together. Not the gospel, not the resurrection, not the Trinity, not defense of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not apologetics, not movements against atheism, and certainly not movements against socialism and communism because the South was communistic. What brings them all together, what sort of supersedes the unity of the church is the South, the cause of the South. And even in this Catholic sense in Montgomery, Alabama on February 8th, 1861, there is this, this very, very interesting belief that this is about the independence and peace and happiness of thy children, thy children who are residing in the master class, in the elevated class, in the upper class, in the South. This is what this is about. And that God would, of course, bless this. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gets even more interesting because there was some understanding that the cause of the South, again, wedded with this Christian advancement of the kingdom, was to be represented in a flag, a flag that represented both God and country. And in the deliberations about the flag in this book are really, really fascinating. One of the awesome things about this book is you get uh, several depictions of the flag of the Confederacy, which, by the way, is not the Confederate battle flag. All these depictions of the Confederacy in terms of flags and this discussion about it wedding both Christ and the kingdom with the cause of the South and the Confederacy. February 9th, 1861, Mr. Miminger, a delegate from South Carolina, offers this into the public record. Mr. President, I conceive that it is fitting occasion to discharge a commission by which we have entrusted to me. By some of my constituents in South Carolina, I have before me a model flag, which I have the honor to be requested by some of the young ladies of Charleston to present to this Congress as the model flag for the Confederated States of the South. No doubt, Mr. President, the idea of the cross was suggested to the imagination of these young ladies by the glorious constellation with which the great creator, this is in caps, great creator meaning God, has place in the southern heavens as a substitute for the great constellation which is situated at the northern pole. And I have no doubt that the cross has been consecrated in the imagination of these ladies by the genius of Dante and the skillful and the scientific skill of Humboldt. And I have little doubt in their minds was also associated a religious idea. This is what he says, that this flag was constituted as a religious idea. They have read of the, of the Baron of Constantine, and although we have not seen in the heavens the in hoc signo vinces, yet we have seen that written by the Almighty, all, capital Almighty, the Almighty, meaning God, upon the tablets of the earth. And we know it by the aid of the revealed religion that the South has been enabled to fight the battles against fanaticism and to achieve the victory which you this day witness. It is not at all unbecoming that on such occasion the duty of the South to the cross should be recognized, and in looking to those which first planted its standard and first preached its doctrines, the South would recognize in these symbols those born by its champions and defenders." What's being defended? This religious idea that somehow the cause of the Confederated States of the South is the cause of the great creator, the Almighty, that this was a new version of Constantinianism. This is what it means to be in the Confederacy. This was a early form, or maybe not early. Well, this is, this is an early form of what we're seeing today in a lot of evangelical Christian nationalism. February 11th, 1861. Prayer offered by Reverend Battle, the president of the Tuskegee Central Female Institute, which is an educational institution. He was, in fact, Baptist. He offers this prayer at the beginning of those proceedings on February 11th, 1861. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we humbly recognize the hand over us. We would humbly acknowledge thy providence in these events of this world's history. And he continues, We thank thee that thou hast permitted us to establish a new confederacy under such propitious omens. Oh, we humbly thank thee for thy great mercy. We pray that thee in thy kindness and mercy would continue a peaceful, prosperous state 
to the remotest of ages, we pray thee. Let thy blessings rest upon us, this O body, O grant wisdom to thy counsels and erection, other actions, etc., etc., etc. So he's thanking God for the establishment of a new confederacy. As if God is involved in the establishment of this confederacy, something for which they should even be thankful for. What's the assumption here? The assumption is, of course, that this is something that, that God is smiling upon, right? God is enjoying, God is looking pleased upon the creation of, of the Confederacy, which is defending the rights of people to own slaves, to subject Native Americans to marginalization and oppression, and also oppress Southern poor whites. Somehow God is in this. So the Baptists believed back then. A few months later, and this is when my eyes really popped out. May 1st, 1861, entered into the record at the proceedings of the Confederate States. Again, by Howell Cobb of Georgia, after the prayer by Mr. Davis, it says here in the public record, was given this. This is, by the way, offered from the president of the Baptist State Convention of Georgia, entered into the public record. Sir, I have the honor of transmitting to you the accompanying resolutions you unanimously passed on Saturday last by the Baptist Convention of the State of Georgia with a request that you would present them to the Congress over which you preside. That God would direct and bless the councils of the Congress and the Confederate government is the prayer of the Baptist Conference of Georgia and of none more sincerely than your obedient servant, N.M. Crawford, chairman of the committee, that offered this communication by the Baptist State Convention of Georgia. Again, that God would direct and bless the councils of the Congress of the Confederate government. The question is, why, why, did, why would they think God would bless this? Why would they even assume that God would bless the support of those who were enslaving blacks? Again, subjecting freed blacks, Native Americans, and poor whites to oppression and subjugation, social and economic marginalization, that God is thumbs up for this. Absolutely fascinating. You want to talk about syncretism? You want to talk about Christian nationalism? You want to talk about the integration, syncretism of the idols of government and the cause of the South with Christianity. Here it is, in plain sight, in the formation of the Confederacy, April 29th, 1861, by the Georgia Baptist Convention. May 14th, 1861. Apparently across the South, there was an announcement of a day of prayer and fasting for the Confederacy. Prayer and fasting for the Confederacy. If you think that today's Christian nationalism is bizarre or out of the ordinary, you do not know history. American conservative Christians in the South in particular have always been like this. So what's the shock? This is a, a, a resolution was passed in reference to a day of fasting here into the public record, May 14th, 1861. A resolution in reference to a day of fasting and prayer that dependence of nations, of individuals, upon an overriding providence. And now, now the providence, by the way, folks, is all caps. Sorry, the, the first letter is capitalized which is a, a proper noun in this sense, which is God. The dependence uh, of, of nations as of, individuals, as of individuals upon an overriding providence at all times, we fully recognize both when peril, surround, and national existence is threatened, it particularly becomes a people 
to manifest their submission to the will and guidance of their omnipotent ruler of the universe. Rulers capitalized, universe is capitalized, i.e. God. If the cause be righteous and the quarrel just, we may confidently rely on him to reigneth alike over the armies of the earth and the hosts of heaven, and at the same time we recognize our duty to appeal humbly to him who who has saith, quote, I will be inquired of of my people, end of quote. To the end, therefore, that the whole people of these Confederate states may, in unison, with one accord, approach the throne of the Most High to invoke his blessing upon our defensive struggle for the right of self-government and the enjoyment of liberty. He vouchsafed to our fathers to protect us from those who threaten our home with fire and sword, our domestic circles with ruthless lust, our fathers' graves with invaders' feet, and our altars with infidel desecration. Are you kidding me? They fasted and prayed for this. Resolved by the Congress of the Confederate States that the president be requested to issue his proclamation appointing a day of fasting and prayer and the observance that all be invited to join and recognize our dependence on God and the happiness and security of that, of that people with which of, of whose God is the Lord. That preamble and resolution was unanimously adopted. They did it. Mr. Oldham of Texas offered the following, which was adopted, resolved that the Committee of Commercial Affairs be directed to inquire into the expediency of making the city of Houston in that state of part of Texas part of the, the delivery in their port uh, by bill otherwise. So they actually announced across the Confederacy a day of prayer and fasting. What are they fasting about and praying about? The God who reigneth over the armies of the earth, over the Most High, would protect them against the defensive struggle of people that do not want them to own slaves and subject Native Americans to oppression and marginalization and to not be communists with respect to poor whites. This is what they want God to to defend them. Because that's what self-government and the enjoyment of liberty was about. That they wanted their homes protected from fire, ruthless lust, invaders' feet, and infidel desecration. As if owning slaves isn't infidel desecration. As if their homes should be protected so they could own slaves and subject everyone else to marginalization and oppression. This was in the prayer. They had a day and fasting across the South for that. Why is a government issuing and announcing a day of fasting? That's not the role of government. The Bible talks about that absolutely nowhere. Prayer and fasting is something that belongs inside the church, not government. Again, this is Christian nationalism, right? This is this is the, the sort of roots of theonomy and Christian reconstruction and things like that. You begin to see it right here in the formation of the Confederacy in Montgomery, Alabama. July 20th, 1861, opens the session opens in prayer by the Reverend Dr. S.K. Talmadge of Georgia, who's a Presbyterian. Again, more Christian nationalism here. Opens in prayer, O Lord, thou art the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, whilst thou by no means clearest the guilty Thou art glorious in thy holiness, faithful in thy punishment of sinners. Thou art our creator and preserver, our kind and gracious benefactor. This is so reformed, right? This is right out of the confession of faith. It's good Presbyterians, great Presbyterian kind of prayer. Then he says this in the prayer, 
We pray, God, to smile propitiously upon our youthful republic and give success to our efforts. Bless all who are connected with the government of the Southern Confederacy. Bless thy servant, the president of the Southern States, and aid him plenteously with wisdom from on high. That God would, in fact, this prayer says, guide them in all of their efforts and would, in fact, give them assistance in the guidance of their duties, that he would smile upon this brand new republic and give it success, give it success in its efforts. So they want God to smile upon slave-holding states and give the slaveholding states success in their efforts to protect their slaveholdingness. And then this is something that they believe is an extension of God's will and glorious providence for the sovereign states of the South. This is Christian Nationalism 101. Again, don't be surprised when this resurfaces, as it does throughout American church history. So they actually did have a a day of fasting and prayer for the cause of the South in Jesus' name, amen. And a resolution was passed. Monies were raised in this day of prayer and fasting, collected from churches that were supporting the cause of the South, particularly churches of the master classes. July 31st, 1861, in the public record, it reads as follows. The resolution heretofore referred to the military committee to appropriate church donations made on the last fast day, amounting to $5,278.88 as a fund for the use of the wounded at the late battle of Manassas, which reported back with some slight amendments and pause. The resolution and pass directs the disbursement and application of the fund to be made to the Secretary of Treasury with the, with the concurrence of the chairman of the committee of the House. So they were raising money from churches to support the cause of the Confederacy all along, these sort of day of, of fasting. And In fact, particular states were giving sums of money to the Confederacy for this cause. Interesting here, as a form of benevolence to support the cause of the South, particularly those wounded, they collected money in the in the in the amount of five thousand two hundred seventy-eight dollars and eighty-eight cents, which if you adjust that to the cost of inflation, it would be the equivalent of raising money from churches to support the wounded soldiers at an amount of one hundred and eighty-four thousand. $176. So about $184,000 equivalent were raised in churches to support those who were wounded in battle uh, at this one battle theater as an act of benevolence. And again, this money was raised from the churches. Got no issue there with that. Of course, raising money to to support and, and, and aid those who are who are wounded in the context of battle or even not just simply wounded, but really struggling on either side of the war, I think would be a worthy, worthy cause. December 6, 1861, again, into the public record. After a particular prayer was given, another resolution was passed by senators and legislators from Missouri And part of this resolution says something, says this, whereas under the providence of God, the valor of the soldiers of the Confederate States have added another glorious victory achieved at Belmont in the state of Missouri on the seventh day of November last to those which have been so graciously vouchsafed to our arms, whereby the reduction of Columbus in the state of Kentucky has been prevented and contemplated descent of the enemy down the Mississippi River effectively stayed 
and offers a resolution in honor and celebration of that. So overall, there was this sense that God was not only in favor of the cause of the South, its free rights, its sovereignty, but was seen as, when given a victory, that it was in fact an evidence of God's providence and graciousness and intent. That God was, at least as these prayers are offered, on their side, in some sense, in their cause of liberty, in their cause of truth, in their cause of piety, in the revealed religion of the South, which was Christianity, that this was, in fact, what the war was about. It was about God advancing a form of Christian nationalism in, in the defense of particular liberties, and those liberties were for the sake of the master class's hold over the economic structures of the South and the political manifestations of being in the Confederacy, which did, again, three things, enslaved blacks and subjected Native Americans and freed blacks and poor whites to economic and political marginalization and oppression. This was the cause of the South that was being defended by the Confederate Armory, and this was the cause of the South that was was seen as a as direct extension, hopefully, of the providence of God. What's so interesting, of course, about this, as seen from the Southern eyes, is that if a victory was given in the war, that was God. We want to thank God, right, for his providence in giving the Southern Army, the Confederate Army, victories in the conflict against the enemies who were bringing desecration and immorality to the South there. It would be really interesting, at least in this discourse, to sort of discern, well, whose side was God on? Because you could obviously, very obviously, read it through the sides of the Union Army. It can make the case that, that God was on the side of abolition. And it's so fascinating during the proceedings of the Confederacy in 1861 that they believed there was some sort of providential intervention with respect to God's own desire for the South to remain as it was. So who's, who's right? Is it the South or is it the North? Did, did God want the North to come in and use force to abolish slavery and the subjugation of Native Americans, free blacks, and poor whites? Or was it God's providence to advance the cause of the South and slavery and to protect the slave-owning saints in their quote-unquote liberty and their religious liberty and piety uh, to do the things I've been mentioning throughout this discussion? Really, really fascinating. I think it's hard to walk away from reading the proceedings of the Confederacy in 1861 and not conclude that there was some sort of religious syncretism in here that you cannot support in the Bible at all. And it was profoundly inappropriate to be passing resolutions during the formation of the Confederacy that would invoke God in the cause of the South. Absolutely inappropriate. Now. Could you invoke God to give them wisdom? Yes. Was it perfectly hap- Was it perfectly fine to use the church to, to 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 support those who are wounded? Absolutely, no problem there. But the assumption, of course, the tacit assumption is they're right, and that God was on the cause. It was on the side of of the South. Feel free to disagree with me, but I'm just reading these prayers and I'm seeing all this syncretism in here. And it's so fascinating that the one thing that could unite Catholics and Baptists and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and the Protestant Episcopals, which became the Methodists, the one thing that could unite them all together was an interest in the cause of the South. Not the gospel, not Jesus, not the Trinity, but the South. And in that sense, it's difficult, very, very difficult for me to not conclude that at least in the 18th century, mid to late 18th century, the cause of the South was an idol. And it completely characterized and drove the ways in which these church traditions interpreted what was happening in their lives. It's so instructive because it makes us wonder what are idols in 2023? 
that are causing all these sort of Christians across traditions to band together to fight whatever social, economic, political cause they think is just and supported, supported by God. Again, highly instructive. I do recommend this book. It is absolutely fascinating. These prayers are both eloquent in their articulation. They're they're learned in their content, lots of Latin and Greek and references to all sorts of things. Theologically rich, very, very theologically rich, uh, but but problematic nonetheless. And it is somewhat troubling to see the ways in which Christianity in the Bible is appropriated for political and economic causes. That's it for today. I will come back because I want to explore the depths of the communism and socialism that was characteristic of the the economics and the politics of the Confederacy. So I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening on the Anthony Bradley Show. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for your very generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You are the most important part of this experience. So if you like this episode and enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to exploring more issues with you. Again, from my vantage point here at the Atkin Institute and Hyper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan on The Anthony Bradley Show.